I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to a podcast exclusive edition of our broadcast. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Cyrus Shapar to our program today. He is director of the Prevent Epidemics team at the Resolve to Save Lives program, which is an initiative of vital strategies. Uh, to be clear, Dr. Shapar is directing the intelligence around COVID, what we know, when we know it, and, and how we can correct course. Doctor, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. What do you think in the dialogue around this pandemic is most needs to be said that is not being said? We know that not a lot is being acted on from the American perspective, not enough at the federal level, but, but what, what needs to be established that still is not being sufficiently established in your mind? Yeah, I think in the United States, uh, and you know, we're a global organization, but of course we have a focus on the United States right now, given our situation. I think one of the main things that isn't, isn't apparent to most is that we really have no idea how we're doing in the response. We don't have information uh, at local, county, state level, and national level to understand whether or not um, we're responding to the problem appropriately and where, where the gaps are. Um, so there's a void of information there, and it really means that as a result, we have, you know, we don't have great eyes on on the response and things will continue and potentially we could miss opportunities um, to respond appropriately or target our interventions uh, better. Well, that that has been really the nightmare for the American response, which is the incoherence of a 50 state strategy. And I ask every expert who's come onto our air the same question, and that is, short of a strong, coherent federal response, is there ever going to be a way that 50 states can handle a pandemic of this magnitude? I don't, I don't think it'll be a reactive um approach that will prevent death and disability, uh, you know, optimally, as we've seen done in other countries. It'll always be something that is more reactive to the situation, um, kind of accepting a certain level of, of morbidity and mortality um, until we have that coherent national approach. Because of the nature of infectious diseases, because they spread across borders, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest, say, jurisdiction in the country. And that's why even if one place does well, eventually, um, you know, the, the places that aren't doing well will lead to kind of a, a longer delayed ongoing problem. Right. And what do you think ought to be the strategy right now in mitigating the pandemic's effect in, in, in the United States? Um, the the most effective way, you know, we, we, I think many of us feel like we need to start over because mm -hmm. we still haven't accepted the, the cost, both the cost to livelihood and the economic cost. Yeah, I think, I think I've seen a number of these uh, reset plans or starting over. And I think, you know, these are all dri <laughs> driven out of, the fact that we're not doing a good job and what we've done already hasn't worked. So certainly if the lack of a national strategy hasn't worked, we need to consider the alternative, which is to have a coherent strategy and to start to have a better understanding of the problem 
across the board, the same information, looking at it the same way, the same definition of what's good and isn't good. This will, this is, this is the start so that we have information, data to inform decisions. You know, I'm biased. We're an organization that focuses on using data uh, and understanding that if you don't have data or information about a problem, you're not going to be able to effectively tackle that problem. So there's a huge void out there in the U.S. We looked at all 50 state dashboards recently and looked at all the information they're sharing, and it's incomplete, it's inconsistent. And this is all coming out of uh, the fact that we don't have a national strategy or we don't have a national standard for COVID information. And that's the basis for what we need to do next. If we're going to have a reset, we need to make sure that we have this information in place so that we know where the problems are. Um, so that we can better fine-tune our response rather than doing blanket measures because we don't know what's going on. And this is how we can move forward into the, the fall and the winter. Do you think that if this disease had the, uh, the Hollywood animation of Ebola and, and sort of the, the, the symptoms were more visible in a way that you know is like blood and guts and gore that there would have been a different mindset because you know you would think people being intubated and ventilated and and on respirators and you know dying um without being able to see their family it was enough psychologically to 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 make us you know demand responsible, uh, proactive steps to, to mitigate. But, you know, just from the perspective of managing this pandemic, um, there, there is something still in, in, a, in a great disconnect or disequilibrium between the reality of what it is and people's behavior. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, Ebola is established as something that's very bad, you know, it has a very high case fatality rate. Um, and when, when it has movies about it. So when if I said there was an Ebola outbreak in a place, uh, people would be very concerned from the start, because their understanding of this is, is that it's a fatal disease. When you have something new, a novel um, virus, and, and we're learning more about it every day, it gives people the opportunity to discount uh, some of the, the facts around the virus. Um, there's also new kind of means of communication, uh, social media, these types of things that allow for messages to be spread in different ways, um, some from you know unverified sources, and that can uh, you know lead to of course an overwhelming amount of misinformation. Um, and so if I say something's a problem, then there'll be statistics or things that people can point to, maybe anecdotal uh, information that they can use to counter that and say, well, it's not a problem. Um, and anytime you have evolving science that gives, that can give fuel to the fire as well in terms of, well, they said this before, but now they're saying this now, again, discounting the fact that, you know, as we, the good science approach is to adapt based on what we learn, not to say that you changed your mind and, and that's a problem. So I think it's an unusual, um, pandemic, of course, the most disruptive event in over a hundred years. Um, we're learning more about the virus every day, but the fact that it's novel, the fact that it's often compared to seasonal flu, something we deal with every year, has led to some underestimation uh, in certain parts of, of communities and in, in the country. And the, the question as to resetting, 
will be something that requires a new administration because of the failure of 50 states to get this under control, including, of course, the states that have succeeded in mitigating the crisis after tens of thousands of people died, New York, New Jersey, some of the states that suffered most gravely. So in that situation, in which there is a new administration that can coordinate a coherent 50-state approach, which country's response would be the model? Um, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, if, if you were advising the United States on, you know, how to, how to try to most effectively reset. Yeah, I think those are all good examples. They all have different aspects to why their response was successful. Um, some of the Asian countries, of course, routinely wear masks. Um, so that is that is more easily adopted, and you see high mask wearing rates, can, which can drive down community transmission, drive down the, the reproduction number, these kinds of things. Some of them are islands, New Zealand, so they can control the ongoing importation of cases more easily. I think New Zealand is a good example of a, a place that there's a lot of things that we could look at and learn from. Um, they haven't had local transmission for many weeks now. They have clear command and control. Um, we see that, that leadership is out front and center with messages for the public, this is what you need to do. They have something called an alert level system, which we advocate for and has been implemented in some st states and counties. And this is, you know, standard red, orange, yellow, green type system so that people know where we are now. They know it's not an on-off in terms of opening or closing, but it's a phased approach. And they understand what it will take to get to the next level in terms of, okay, if we can do this and drive down community transmission, that, then, then that means this sector can open or these businesses can open in a clear way and really understand their risk when they walk outside the door on a daily basis. So they've adopted in New Zealand some of these approaches as well, but it, but it really is centered around the strong central leadership, the good risk communications with the public and the, the sense that we're all in this together as a team. Now the U.S. is going to be a more difficult to place than, a difficult place to work than New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Korea, given the 48 contiguous states, given the diversity of um, acceptance of things like mask wearing. So it'll be a more difficult place to work, but it doesn't mean that um, we can't do a better job of responding to this pandemic. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the reality is that we had not experienced something like this for a hundred years, but it had been predicted long before 2020. Um, you and, and Dr. Frieden and others have been very clear about epidemic, pand pandemic preparedness. Um, but there does seem to be something uniquely problematic in America. Uh, the other countries have accepted that this is a once in a century event, but we can rapidly arm ourselves with the right information and protective measures to, to take action. So in the cases of the of the responses that that have have not been responsible or cognizant of the seriousness, um, we talk about America having huge health disparities and inequities that that has disfavored the response. But how do you compare the U.S. to some of the other failures? Um, 
Brazil. Um, I don't know if you would call India a failure, but you know, the countries that have not been able to get this under control. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. has, I would say, the worst response in the world, given that a quarter of the cases and deaths are in this country. Um, and as you alluded to before, there are some similarities in some of these countries that are maybe less successful in response uh, around underestimating, even from the highest levels of leadership, the virus and its impacts, or um, even some of the measures that we can all take to protect ourselves. You know, if leadership is not saying we should all wear a mask or not mandating masks or not supporting certain industries like the airline industry to make masks required, then that's going to just, uh, you know, lead to the spread of disease. Um, and these are things that have lagging effects. And, you know, so they, they, um, they, they can result in a decision today can impact a few months, uh, you know, a few weeks or a month from now. And, that can, you know, is something for some people, it's hard to understand in terms of, you know, they, it's easier to see what's in front of you and whether or not I make this policy or make this rule, how, how that impacts tomorrow, but not understand that deaths will come, you know, a month later. Right, right. So in your current job, tracking the intelligence related to COVID and the pandemic, what does a day-to-day look like for, for the work that you're doing? Um, I think our listeners might be interested. Yeah, so we work at multiple levels. We work with jurisdictions on, you know, the actual information they're providing to others, um, support to help them figure out, well, what information is useful to present about COVID? How can they best protect their populations? Uh, Looking at the nuances of the data. We look globally at things like the science of COVID. So reviewing articles, there's a fire hose of information when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, and how do you pick out, you know, what's what's important in terms of, you know, peer-reviewed science, preprint science, you know, it takes a, a trained eye to kind of digest this information, and we summarize that in a weekly science brief to help, uh, you know, focus people on what's important in terms of changes to science. We also produce data insights that look at, you know, the COVID information and and what what could be coming in two to three weeks. Where are we headed? What are the important things we need to think about? So what do you think are the most important things to think about in the, in the limited conditions we have under this administration and with the lack of dedication on the part of some of our governors? Like what, what are the things that we are able to do in these next months until there may be a new federal initiative to take on the disease? Yeah, I think we need to establish a foundation, a better foundation for understanding what's going on with COVID. As I said, we don't have eyes on how the response is going. So I'll give you an example of fires. You know, we know there's a lot of fires out there, uh, COVID fires, you know, and we know we have some idea of which ones are big, you know, cases, hospitalizations, deaths, these kinds of things. Um, But we have no idea about the percent containment, which is another critical figure when you think about a fire in your neighborhood, what percent of it is contained. Uh, and, and in most places, we don't have information on contact tracing programs, on how long it takes to get a test back. These are things that are critical to an effective response. So establishing that information layer is extremely important over the next month. Um, and we're working with jurisdictions on that. And if it's not going to come from the federal government in terms of standardized guidance, 
then you know states have to look across to other states to see what they're doing doing and learn from these best practices so if we establish that layer of information that'll be better no matter how the response goes then another thing a hot topic of course is schools. what's going on with schools we need to have eyes on the experience in, uh, of opening schools in high community transmission areas. We don't have experience from around the world on this because most of them opened when community transmission was low. So we need to learn from what happens in places like Florida, Texas, Georgia, and make sure that that information is rapidly um, looked at. Uh, it leads to updated guidance to inform the whole country and protect you know, our children as we enter into the fall. Right, and, and when it comes to seeding the virus, it, it, the science suggests that there is really no way to open schools without the new, new seeding events that can um, start the, the kind of devastating cycle uh, of a, a domino effect in communities of the virus. Um, you know, are, are you, do you believe that schools can be open safely? I think there is a way to open schools safely, but the most important thing you can do is control community transmission. Otherwise the virus will make it into schools and it'll continue to be a threat, uh, more frequently in those areas than say areas with low community transmission. So it's really hard to have a safe space in a setting where everything around you isn't doing well. So, so if that criteria isn't met, then schools that open won't be safe places to open. So right now, if you look at the US, you know, there, there's over half of the country on the statewide basis, if you look at some of the indicators, would be a setting where you have to really have a great case to open schools, otherwise it shouldn't be done because there's just too much ongoing community transmission. Um, and this is a result of decisions, say, that were made one to two months ago. Right. You know, and, and the focus now on the vaccine to eliminate COVID is because of how widespread it has become in the United States and, and other parts of the world, too, given that global travel at some point will be a goal and to resume that requires that COVID is under control in, in many countries. Um, do you have any assessment based on the intelligence that you gather, and, and perhaps this is contingent upon an effective vaccine regime, that um, you know, a, a, an effective vaccine regimen will allow the reopening of, of civil society in a way that, that we haven't seen. Do you have any sense of the timetable for which we are, we're going to be prepared, not just the U.S., but, but as a global society to, to actually return to that pre-COVID, pre-pandemic place? Yeah, I would say the, the short answer is TBD, but I would think of years and not months or weeks. You know, there's several challenges to, to the situation that you described in terms of getting back to kind of functioning near what we were functioning at before in terms of our uh, you know, going into society and doing the things that we used to do. There's so many challenges when it comes to vaccine development 
we're, we're, we're proceeding along a timeline, an accelerated timeline that's never been done before. There's many candidates, but we know some of them will fail. We don't know how effective these vaccines will be. We don't know how many doses will be needed. We don't know how safe they will be. We can't take shortcuts on the safety part of it. Uh, and lastly, we, we don't have established mechanisms for distributing billions of doses of vaccine equitably around the world. And that needs to be worked on and is being worked on right now. But there's a lot of hurdles there. And if you look at in the United States, the challenges we've had with testing and getting tests out to everyone, we still are not nowhere close to the number of tests we need. And they're taking a week right now. So how do we expect, you know, we can expect challenges when it comes to vaccine distribution, uh, given our experience in testing. So for all of those reasons, all those steps that are all necessary and that we have to pass through to get to have everybody having a safe, effective vaccine and being protected. I think that that's something that, you know, is going to take, as I said, years and not months. Right. I, I think, do you agree that the majority of, of Americans and maybe the majority of, of people in general, perhaps because the last pandemic was a hundred years ago and perhaps because then we didn't have the ease with which we could travel and expect to go from the US to Europe to Asia. Do, do you think that people get, you know, even five, six months into the real crisis that, do they get that? I, I don't think so um, as a whole. You know, obviously no one's ever been through this uh, before, uh, who, you know, who was an adult during the Spanish flu. Um, so this is brand new for everyone. and. I think, you know, it's, it's going to take time for people to kind of adjust to the fact that, okay, you know, am I going to be home from work for weeks or is it going to be months or is, you know, we, we still don't know. There's no right answer, but we know it's getting longer and longer. Um, so this need, this desire to go back out there and sometimes when things open, you see people kind of doing things that are high, very risky because they might have, you know, want to escape from this sense of confinement. Um, but we see the impacts of those behaviors. Um, and so I think there's going to have to be this process of us all kind of coming to terms with the fact that there is no right answer that we should all be able to go outside right now and do the things we used to do. This is something that we're learning more about every day. And in the meantime, we need to do what's best to protect all of us. Um, and if we're not all, all on the same page with that, then this is just going to be an ongoing problem. And so I think it's like phases of, you know, uh, acceptance and, and these types of things that we have to go through. And unfortunately, as we do that, the longer it takes, the more people will suffer. The, the more people will suffer and the public knowledge and literacy can be crucial to mitigating this. I mean, even if a vaccine could not be created and we did not have the scientific prowess, which we, which we probably do, you know, the, the situation is such that it is widespread, but with a disciplined approach by citizens, like the approach in New York that was taken after a horrific body count um, and, and thousands, tens of thousands of deaths, that you know, a disciplined approach uh, with mass communication such that it is in a disciplined citizenry could have as significant an effect as a vaccine. If, if you had 
a disciplined citizenry. I mean, do, do you believe that? Yes, I think that's been the experience in many parts of the world. We're an outlier in terms of you know what's going on here compared to the other countries uh, in Asia and Europe. And I think so. So a co a situation where everybody is on board, um, everybody kind of adopts good practices like washing your hands, washing your distance, and wearing a mask. And you can drive down transmission to a rate at which you know public health departments can control it through uh, contact tracing strategies, isolation of cases, this kind of thing. Um, and and that'll allow for you know 80% of what we used to do uh, to happen. So there certainly is a path forward uh, if we if we go down that approach, and we've seen that in other countries. I think we do need to understand that that threat will be ongoing though, and we're seeing a resurgence in some parts of the world that previously had it controlled. But yes, there is there is um, a way forward in the absence of vaccine, and that way forward can be effective as long as we all understand that this is something we need. And, to and let me just ask you a final question, uh, very briefly on the science. We don't really know the yet whether um, food, for instance, that was frozen with a contaminated person who may have been asymptomatic or symptomatic at the time that they were storing food in a and, and that food then six months later is, is removed from a freezer uh, and, and uh, there is a seeding event that occurs. Even if folks are doing everything right with masks and um, human transmission, um, preventing human to human transmission, with this particular pathogen, we don't know yet whether you know, six months later, a year later, two years later, uh, someone could come in touch with a, um, you know, a sample um, that could lead to a, a reemergence of this. We, we don't really know the answer to that question scientifically yet, right? Right. I mean, that's more of a theoretical risk. Uh, I would say we haven't seen large outbreaks related to food. Uh, with respect to COVID-19, so we don't think that's a major component of transmission. Uh, what you describe reminds me of anthrax being kind of frozen in, in Siberia, and we've seen, you know, that as things thaw, perhaps there's some infectious diseases that that, that haven't been around for a while, uh, you know, reappearing. But I don't think, you know, in the context of everything that's going on with COVID, that's not our primary um, threat. Right, right. We, we, we don't know, though, and... In, 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 um... It, it doesn't have to be a, from a food source. It could be from an industrial site. The point is that folks can, we don't know just how folks can be re-exposed. Um, and, and, you know, that was the, the, at least the Chinese government line in, you know, the reintroduction of COVID in a, in a um, food facility, I think it was salmon. That may have come from, from folks from, you know, places where the virus was still ongoing. We just don't know. Um, Dr. Cyrus Shapar, uh, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you for having me. It's been great to join.